0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to
1: the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, March 4th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everybody. How are you tonight? I'm doing fantastically well. Hey,
2: happy International Women's Day to everyone! Not the day that we're recording, Women's day. but uh, yeah, March eighth, the day that this podcast goes out, is International Women's Day. What's it celebrating? Women, <laughs>
0: <laughs> international women,
2: international women. Uh, well, it started out as a socialist holiday, as a celebration of working women and. There are a lot of dates that tie into the Bolsheviks' rebellion and the February Revolution and all of that good stuff. But eventually, over the years, it has become an internationally celebrated event. Uh, In 1977, the UN invited member states to celebrate the day as uh, an official UN Day for Women's Rights and World Peace. So... That has been happening year after year. Back in 2011, in fact, it was uh, the, the theme that the UN announced for Women's Day was equal access to education, training, and science and technology. And this year is equality for women is progress for all.
0: Good. You know, that was probably a finger in the eye to places like Saudi Arabia who won't let women, you know, do the most basic of things that, you know, the rest of the men in the country are able to do, education among them.
2: So with that in mind, I thought that I would mention that this day in science history was Beatrice Schilling's birthday. Beatrice Schilling was an aeronautical engineer who corrected a serious default in a plane engine during the Second World War. Uh, basically, what would happen was uh, German planes had the ability to, to fly, to like maneuver in combat by uh, flying towards the ground very quickly. Uh, but the British planes couldn't follow them because the negative G maneuvers would uh, flood the engine with excess fuel and cause them to lose power or completely shut down.
0: Is that what like choking the engine is like? Is that...
2: Uh, uh, or flooding the engine, I guess. Flooding the engine? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, Beatrice, also known as Tilly, Tilly Schilling, uh, Tilly came up with this little, kind of like a little, little washer. It was just like a little metal disc with a Whole hole in doodad. it. A doodad. Yeah, a doodad. <laughs> and, uh, it was really <laughs> simple, doodad. but it solved the problem. And in 1941, she toured around to different fighter bases installing this little doodad on their engines. And she became immensely popular for that because she, you know, probably saved a lot of lives through it. And, and then we
1: won the war. <laughs> thanks
2: thanks to Tilly. Uh, so, yeah, it, and, um, apparently the, uh, doodad became known as Miss Schilling's Orifice, or <laughs> simply the Tilly Orifice,
1: <laughs> which
2: I quite like. Uh, yeah, so she, she was a badass, and after the war, she started racing motorcycles, and, uh, apparently an anecdote goes that she refused to marry the guy who became her eventual husband until he, uh, matched her speed around a race course. Uh, she had been awarded a gold star for lapping this particular circuit at over 100 miles per hour. And so she wouldn't marry him until he did the same, which apparently he did because they got married. So yeah, Tilly Schilling.
1: Happy birthday. Gotta be careful there, Rebecca. You're gonna get over
2: 15%. I know. I'm getting an <laughs> early head start for the year. I'm <laughs> stacking them up. This counts as two. Yeah, this is the double.
1: No, no. The Mm -hmm. Women's Day is three and a half billion. Oh, right. Yeah, Yeah. that's a good point. I'm going to have to do quite a bit to make up for this. All right. Let's go on to some news items. So there's uh, a bit of a challenge in messaging to anti-vaccination parents. Essentially, talking to parents about the uh, the benefits of vaccines and reassuring them about the lack of any evidence showing any connection between the MMR vaccine or vaccines in general or thimerosal with autism or neurological disorders. Uh, There was a recent study where they were actually comparing the effectiveness of different approaches to take, although this was a survey. It was a survey of 1,759 parents. Um, So this didn't actually track uh, whether or not parents actually got their kids vaccinated. Just asked them, would they vaccinate their kids? So you always have to take that with a grain of salt. Just as with all surveys, it's all about how you ask the question and how they're they're positioned, et cetera, et cetera. But taking that face value, what the results showed was prior to any messaging, the parents indicated that they would be 70% likely to vaccinate a future child against MMR. Then they were subjected to one of four types of messages – The first one simply gave them information indicating that the MMR vaccine does not cause autism. The second showed pictures of children who had one of the diseases prevented by the MMR. Another one gave um, information about the dangers of those diseases, mumps, measles, and rubella. And then the fourth was a story about an infant who almost died from measles. So I was just trying to see which of these methods was was more effective, so after parents were given information indicating that the MMR vaccine was safe and did not cause autism, the percentage of parents who said that they would vaccinate went from seventy percent to forty five percent Oh it actually went went in the wrong direction, went down Ouch. even though even though more parents said that they were less likely to believe. That vaccines caused autism. They were still less likely to vax, to vaccinate a a hypothetical future child. Why is that? That's a good question. Obviously, the survey doesn't directly answer that question. So now we have to go purely into the realm of speculation to, to, or maybe use other studies to try to hypothesize why that might be. So we don't, you know, obviously we don't know, but, uh, one of the authors uh, suggested that, uh, people may be motivated to defend their more skeptical or less favorable attitudes towards vaccines. So when you essentially take away one objection to vaccination, they then think, well, what are some other reasons why I might object to vaccines? I still don't like them for these other reasons. They dredge up other reasons why they don't like vaccines. And then that hardens their position against them.
2: You know, like you say, we we find this over and over and over again when we're trying to disabuse someone of some weird belief, they don't just easily give it up. They, you know, they want to think that they want to think it over. They want to come to their own conclusion or feel like they're coming to their own conclusion on it. So rarely, like in the middle of a discussion, does somebody suddenly change their mind 100%. Yeah, no, you're,
1: um, you're that's true. No, timing, I think is important. And again, you know, this it's just not really looking at vaccination rates, just, you know, just people's report about what they would do. It's, it's tricky. At least, at the very least, I don't think this is definitive information just because of the the nature of the study. But what it suggests is that we could inadvertently cause the opposite effect of what we're going for by trying to do public outreach. Because, and this, this is consistent with other research that we talked about on the show where if you give people information that contradicts a position that they have, they're likely to then harden their position because you're essentially forcing them to defend their position, forcing them to think of other reasons or to think of reasons to defend their position. So that just hardens it. Um, and What the authors also cautioned is that because vaccination rates are actually quite high and going after the minority of parents who are anti-vaccine is probably not worth it because we're not going to change their minds. But by bringing up the issue at all, we may inadvertently turn off parents who would have vaccinated their kids had we not just had we not raised the issue at all, you know what I mean? So there's actually much more room for harm than for good here, so mm-hmm. we have to be very careful. And but maybe the best thing to do is nothing, or just be very careful about any messaging to do with vaccines. Like don't screw, don't screw with it. We're already, we we have, you know, actually the numbers are pretty good. There are pockets of vaccine refusal, but overall vaccination rates are pretty high, and so. Any discussion about it may, in fact, have a negative effect.
0: So it's better to be re- reactive in this case rather than proactive.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's thing. It's a, this is the the conundrum with any kind of public messaging um, is that you, you know, and the authors. They make a very good point: is that we shouldn't just do it, assuming that it's good. You know, any kind of public service announcement or anything. That you have to actually do uh, some evidence based research to find out what's the likely effect of your messaging going to be because people are complicated psychological animals. You know, we're kind of nutty as a species. And, you think? and we're, we're, you know, we're just, we're likely to do things like, oh, okay, you know, you're giving me facts, so I'm going to believe the opposite. You know, we're just psychologically so complicated, we're just likely to, to react in a very irrational way. And most public service announcements are based upon an assumption of rationality, which is not justified by the evidence. For example, if you, public messaging is based upon, you know, scaring people by saying, oh, you know, a lot of people use drugs, and and they and it ruins their lives. What people hear are a lot of people use drugs, and then they think, oh, it's oh, it's acceptable to do so. You know, they respond more to the social message than the practical message. Whereas if you say to people, you know, most of your your peers are not doing this bad behavior, that is more likely to have a positive effect. You know, then they you're put you're using the peer pressure against doing the behavior. But you know, you you have to base this on evidence, is the bottom line. You can't just do what superficially or naively makes sense, because chances are it's you know it could have the opposite effect of what you intend. All right, let's move on, Evan. Mm. Speaking of irrationality,
0: <laughs> good point.
1: I hear that the drought that is currently ravaging California's farms. Is about to be solved.
0: Last week we talked about dowsing for HIV in Egypt, and this week the farmers of California are turning to dowsers to find water for them.
1: Yeah, they're now going they old school. They're dowsing for actual water.
0: <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> not gold, old not school. for missing children, not for, you know, whatever, yeah. missing turtles or whatever. It's actual water. Classic. There is a website called droughtmonitor.unl.edu, which monitors drought conditions throughout the USA. Uh, They use a scale ranging from zero, which means abnormally dry, which is the lowest drought stage, up to four, which is described as an exceptional drought. Just about all of California is at a level two right now and a huge swath in the center of the state and the coastline area. They're at level four. So it's bad. There is a range of theories as to why the drought's occurring, um, and why this one is so com- so severe compared to other droughts in the past. Uh, some are arguing the main issue is a high pressure system sitting off the coast, which is blocking Pacific storms from rolling on into the state, bringing the rainfall they need. And some have outright said it's because of climate change, just kind of a generic excuse there. And some argue that it's, uh, it's a, a government problem. We oversubsidize the farm industry. And keep water prices artificially low leads to overconsumption and planting in dry areas where farming becomes inefficient and environmentally unsound. But despite the reasons why, science is winning the day. Among the most desperate in California, they are bringing in the dowsers to find the water they need. You know, the old song, Send In the Dowsers, Those Laughing yeah, that one, Happy yeah. Dowsers, Da 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 Da. You know the song. You're making and, it And uh, they're known as water witches, also. Water witches, we've heard that term used as well. They use divining rods. They're made of either copper or wood, or in some cases, whalebone or coat hangers. I bet you know, they find the,
2: the term water witch derogatory, do you think?
0: No, I don't think so because I've seen it mentioned in, you know, several articles. I call and them it's... water fools. <laughs>
2: Uh. I, don't know, I just, I just feel like I can picture someone bristling and saying, "Excuse me, I'm a dows'er, not a water witch, uh, or a water witch." I think because it sounds very like seventeenth century
0: water warlock. Oh, gee, I, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually much older than that. Dowsing's been around for thousands of
2: years. F, can you
0: does have,
3: Can you describe uh, the tools that a a dows'er would use so people in the audience can visualize it?
0: Sure, absolutely. There's lo- there are several different tools you can use. But let's take, for example, a coat hanger. Okay, take a coat hanger and, you know, cut it into two equal pieces and put an and straighten it out. And then you put a 90 degree bend at one end. So you're kind of holding the handle on the short end and the long end is pointing out sort of in front of you. And you take one of these in each of your hand, right? And you start walking around and you kind of loosely hold these things until all of a sudden, Either the two wands will converge and cross each other or point away from each other or start to point down towards the earth or up towards the sky or whatever else you feel is significant. And therefore, bang, you found whatever it is you're looking for. And in this case, water, um, which is the most common thing, I suppose, that dowsers dows for. Uh, but you can also use, you know, birch twigs, you know, things in kind of this wishbone shape and you hold it at either end where the wishbone and the wishbone point meets in the middle and you hold it up towards the sky, you start walking around and holding uh, an end of it in each hand and all of a sudden, wow, that point, that wishbone point starts to point down and there's the water. We've talked about this many times and skeptics know that something called the idiomotor effect is at work in which you make very uh, subtle and uh, subconscious movements with your hand, whether you realize it or not. And that is what is actually getting these devices to move around. You know, it's not actually detecting any material of any kind. And it's been tested thoroughly many times throughout the last several decades. And in all cases, the dowsers have performed no better than chance at finding what they were otherwise claim They would have 100% success finding when they actually know what they're looking for. But if you blind it properly, no better than chance. So that's the story of dowsing. Now what's happening though is that, you know, because they're desperate these people, these farmers are 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 so desperate to get water in any way they can, they've they've called in the dowsers. And uh they make a pretty good living at it too. There are some uh some fellows who will charge uh $500 per site visit. And uh, that's just for the initial test and if they actually wind up uh, reaching a well of water, they'll receive, uh, you know, some, uh, some more money on top of that. So there certainly is an industry, uh, behind all of this and California are doing whatever it takes. Hey, do you remember, do you remember when Perry was writing an article for, uh, for our newsletter back at, back in the nineties and he was, he was reaching out to local chapters of dowsers?
4: Oh yeah, yeah. In
0: in Connecticut. So he was writing the article. I I don't know if he told you guys this, but he told me this. He, he called up one place and started asking them some questions and so forth. And the person on the end of the other end of the phone, I'll never forget how he said it like this. He said, the other guy on the other end of the phone said, I don't have to prove nothing to you. Click and hung up on him. Perry thought that was, Perry, that was the highlight of Perry's research into dowsing, and that's kind of the response you get. You <laughs> say up on. you're a skeptic I, about these things. I
3: remember that. <laughs>
0: I don't have to prove nothing to you. Get out of here. Kid. You're bothering me. Yeah, why be bothered by evidence and uh, science? You know, those things kind of do get in the way. So, yeah, it's p- pretty bad in California. Um, They had a blast of rainfall in the past few days, which brought a modicum of relief. It's still not enough. Oh, the dowsing worked. To- <laughs> I guess so. Uh to, it's <laughs> no, they're not rain sticks. They don't they don't make it rain, oh, but uh they they find water under the ground. Uh they would need a lot more of these storms could kind of bring them back to normal levels. It's going to be a problem this coming summer. They're uh, they're at summer stages of water levels right now, but they don't ha- you know, it's where they would be in July right now and it's March. And uh it's supposed to get drier not wetter as the months go on. So it is a big problem.
1: Yikes. They grow a lot of food in California, don't they? They did. (laughs) They did. Just a little.
0: So, uh, yep. But, you know, when people are desperate, they'll do whatever it takes and uh, dowsers are lining up.
1: When there's blood in the water, the sharks start circling. It's unfortunate.
2: If there's blood in the water, they'd never be able to find it.
1: Bob, you're going to tell us now about uh, yet another way to to capture what would otherwise be wasted energy.
4: So, guys, this one was interesting. Scientists are declaring that before long we may have a new source of renewable energy – that's been pretty much ignored for for quite a while namely uh, they're they're talking about tapping into the thermal energy released by earth into space how's that for an en- mm. energy harvester so they want to recapture the the energy that's leaving the planet the radiation that that's leaking out yes so what they so their claim though um they claim to have created a viable path for be- being able to harvest the Earth's infrared emissions that could eventually play a role in our attempts to use more re- renewable energy, right? I mean re- renewable energy is such a huge hot, hot ticket item. The real kicker is the claim that the, the device may pro- that they propose could generate electric power by actually emitting infrared radiation. So kind of like a reverse solar panel, which is really odd. So they, they call it, um, emissive energy harvesters. So this is a class of energy har- harvesters called emissive. Now, so for details, check out, uh, this week's proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, I know the science, it sounds kind of out there, but I, I, I started to taking it, I started taking it seriously considering we're talking about physicists at the, at the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. So that was like a plus in terms of credibility. The other one was that, uh, one of the, the main scientists is, uh, Federico Capasso. He's a world-renowned expert in quantum optics and photonics. This guy's got a hell of a resume. He co-invented the infrared quantum cascade laser in 94, and he pioneered the field of bandgap engineering, and he did some of the first demonstrations of uh, the Casimir Force. This guy is definitely uh, – But what's he done lately? Upper, upper, yeah. So, of course, just because they're experts doesn't mean that they're right, right? That's Skeptics 101. Um, but I think it does mean that they're definitely worth taking seriously and considering what they have to say. So what they do is they describe two types of devices – that could demonstrate what they're talking about. One is kind of similar to a solar thermal power, power generation. Basically, it consists of a hot plate and a cold plate. The hot plate is essentially the temperature of the earth and the air, the ambient temperature, and the cold plate would be on top of that that, if, that efficiently cools itself because it's made of some highly emissive material. Now, the calculations and experiments that they did show that this could generate a few watts per square meter, day or night. Um, so, I mean, that's a few watts per square meter. I mean, that's not... Great, but it's not, it's not horrible either. You could, you know, you could do something with that. So they admit that it would be difficult to keep the cold plate cooler than the surrounding environment. They say that the main purpose, you know, for this Specific device was just the proof of concept that work is derived from differences in temperatures. I mean, without any temperature differences, you couldn't get anything done. Literally, you couldn't even think. Uh, nothing would happen, um, and that's that's pretty much the definition of the heat death of the universe in trillions of years, when all the all the energy is just spread out so evenly and diffusely that you—I don't care who you are, you—even if you're Q from Star Trek, you're not going to get anything done because there's no temperature differences anywhere. Now, the first device that I mentioned with the cold plate and the hot it's it's a little bit tough because there's a you know a, it's gonna be tough to ma- to cool that cold plate. Bob, what about the blue plate special though? <laughs> yeah, good one Jay. <laughs> so <laughs> so in response to that they came up with a, another device that uh, it would be I'm easier funny. to make because it doesn't require you keeping a cold plate cold. So this device is more reminiscent of photovoltaics and it, it relies on the temperature difference to do work and generate power, just like the first device. But the difference is that it's all on the, na- the nano scale. So it's not like you're going to touch <laughs> it. You're not going to touch it. And what? What are you chuckling at, Rebecca? That was
2: a me. That was
1: me. That was <laughs> me <laughs> chuckling. Oh my God. Oh my God. I, you chuckle like a little
4: girl.
2: <laughs> like a girl. I, excuse me. I am all not a little girl. <laughs> we were both just insulted. <laughs> yes absolutely punch someone so
4: all right so we're talking about temperature differences at the nanoscale. so it's not like you can put your hand on it and say oh this is cold or this is hot so it's it's not as a uh, it's not as tactile as 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 the first device but um let me see if I can do this a little bit of justice so you guys have heard of electrical noise right? Oh, yeah. Yes. So this is produced because electrical components can spontaneously all by themselves create current going in either direction. If some of those electrical components, so like the diodes or the resistors, if they could, if, if one if some of them were cooler than the others, then the current would flow in only one direction, making a positive voltage, which, which is the goal. So what they're suggesting is that if some of these components efficiently emitted earth's infrared radiation it would actually it would cool those specific components which would cause the temperature difference thereby allowing you to generate power so that's that's their idea in a nutshell for this other device so in their paper they suggest that you could potentially make a like a very like a flat device and coating it with tons of these tiny little electrical circuits and then pointing it at the sky and then and then that would be able to generate electricity from just from the, the radiation, the temperature difference between the components. And that's the crux of what they're talking about.
0: Is it just a mathematical theory right now? They haven't put they haven't devised a test yet for that?
4: No, they they've done some some experiments. I mean they, they haven't created these devices yet. Um because and that and that gets that gets me to the, the caveats of uh of this uh, of this technology technology. I think it's really important to stress that these devices don't exist yet. You can't buy these. No one has really made this yet. So the researchers say the following regarding this. Today's technology is not sufficient to make an efficient, cost-effective, optoelectronic emissive emissive energy harvesters. It can't quite do it yet. But we have described a number of
1: paths that could plausibly lead there over time. Well, Jay, now this is not speculative. You're going to tell us about a scientist who is sure that we've discovered life on Mars. This time, he's really sure. (laughs)
3: Well, yeah, not too <laughs> long ago, NASA reported that a strange-looking rock had appeared in front of the Mars Opportunity rover. You guys must re- remember this. God, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. So the jelly very, donut. Very patiently, skeptics uh, just waited for them to, you know, give some answers or what it was, instead of jumping to conclusions. And what we ended up finding out from NASA is that, you know, this is where they think the rock came from. There was two possibilities. It could have been a nearby impact that sent the rock toward the rover, say. You know, the, there was a shift in the, in the surface, um, regolith, or there were meteors, maybe a meteor hit the planet, you know, sure, it's possible, as unlikely as it could be. But the second explanation, which was much more likely, is that the rover kicked up a rock. You know, it is driving over the surface of Mars, and there are rocks there. Inconceivable. And, right, so. What about the third one, that it came from Krispy Kreme? Nope. No, any, they didn't. They, they rolled that one out that the first one? day. Okay. So in comes this self-proclaimed scientist named Ron Joseph, who is a known pseudoscientist that has authored tons of books. Um, some of them are titled Biological UFOs, Evidence for Extraterrestrial Extraterrestrial Extremophiles, Life in Space, The Transmitter to God, the Limbic System, the Soul, and Spirituality, and Astrobiology, mm-hmm. the Origin of Life, and the Death of Darwinism. Oh, an expert. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting, <laughs> though. I mean, look at, look at this – You know, the pathway that he took to bully NASA. He ended up suing NASA to compel them to investigate the rock because he believes it's an alien life or it's an alien life form. The rock in question has been named Pinnacle Island. And as I said earlier, NASA gave a couple of explanations about what the rock, where it could have came from. But Joseph believes the rock is, and I quote, a mushroom-like fungus, a composite organism consisting of colonies of lichen and cyanobacteria and which on Earth is known as apothecium. He's sure that it's, you know, these certain types of life forms that exist on Earth or, you know, similar to life forms that exist on Earth. Uh, he says, he also says later on, the evidence is consistent with biological activity and suggests that life on Mars may have been discovered. In the lawsuit, Joseph is trying to have the, the law force NASA to perform a public, scientific, and statutory duty, which is to closely photograph and thoroughly scientifically examine and investigate a putative biological organism. Joseph continued to state <laughs> that NASA is deliberately hiding the evidence that the rock is alien life.
1: So I, th- I think this is all publicity seeking.
3: Yeah, I do too. I, I also happen to believe that the guy... Legitimately thinks that, you know, there's something going on that NASA's hiding the information. Definitely conspiracy theory type thinking here. Yeah. You know, and in the end, though, the bottom line is, you know, NASA is, is sharing most of the data. I'm sure that they're collecting, you know, I, you know, don't know to what degree, but they, they are very open with their information. They did look at the rock. They, they photographed it many, many, many times. You know, they, it wasn't like they were trying to, just avoid it it didn't seem to me like in any way shape or form that they were they were trying to hide the information I mean they they said what the explanation is and this guy doesn't believe them and you know he's he's actually filed a lawsuit in California to to take NASA to task on going back to the rock and you know doing a public and open analysis of it so what do you guys think of that
2: well i'm wondering what he thinks of it like i'm i'm wondering does he think that NASA knows it's alien life and is purposely trying to hide that fact? Or does he think that they don't realize the great thing they found and they're just ignoring it because of incompetence?
0: Maybe the latter, because if you think that NASA had photographs of an alien form on the...
4: yeah, their, their budget would, like, double overnight.
2: Like, if you know that there's alien life there, you wouldn't... Publicly send a rover there, like you just. And if you knew there was alien life there that the government wanted to keep hidden, you wouldn't announce to everybody. <laughs> Guess what we did? We landed a rover on Mars, and now we're going to send back photos. And here's <laughs> a picture of this life. Ignore that, though. We yeah, don't, do you know about it. No, I mean, there's no coherent story here.
1: You know, like I recently wrote about the similar thing, like basically pareidolia with the guy looking at faces on Mercury. It's like, oh, you know, you got to document this before NASA photoshops away these images well why wouldn't they have done that before they made them available on the internet you know it's like they're simultaneously (laughs) they believe that NASA simultaneously are these brilliant schemers with all this control and that they're utter morons. Right. That, that, that's the typical conspiracy narrative for whatever reason. And again, why? Like, Bob is correct. Bob, they wouldn't, NASA's budget wouldn't be doubled. Yeah. It would increase by an order of magnitude. You know, how much money would we give NASA if they were, if we had, you know, pretty convincing evidence that there is life on Mars? How much would, you know, how high would we prioritize more missions to investigate that life?
3: Yeah. And then you have to question whether or not people like this guy think uh, the conspiracy just goes far and deep.
1: Well, yeah, they just keep, every time you point out some inconsistency in their, their nonsensical notions, they just deepen the conspiracy. Yeah. Cause you could, any, any inconvenient bit of logic or evidence just, just as it becomes evidence of how that the conspiracy itself goes deeper and deeper. That's why there's no way out of the conspiracy mindset. Yeah. It's immune to evidence. Jay, per- did you notice that the, the scientist quoted no, in he- the article is David Brin? Yes, I did. Do you know what who, do you know who David Brin is uplift wars, of course yes. yep. uplift wars, so I Ooh. went to the his blog post He's that an is referenced in the article that you were that you were discussing, and it 's a pretty entertaining read. I mean he completely deconstructs a paper by Ron Joseph on you know life on Earth comes from other planets, and you know so Brin is a writer and a scientist who who very entertainingly. Takes that, take takes this guy down, and he talks about this was he this was an invited peer review from the Journal of Cosmology. You guys, remember? oh, I remember that bad yeah. boy. Mm-hmm. it's, so a, it's a give a quick description, Steve. It's a completely pseudoscientific journal that publishes a lot of crap, uh-huh. and we you know we we've discussed several articles that have cropped up in that in that journal. Bryn goes over the fact that when he turned his review into the editor, the editor went ballistic. And started yeah. accusing him of, of attacking Joseph and, you know, just ridiculous. Like, excuse me. You invited me to do a scientific review. Here it is. And the guy was arguing like a troll on the internet. The editor of this journal, the Journal of Cosmology was basically <laughs> behaving like an internet troll rather than a professional editor. It was, you know. Awesome. And Bryn published it just to show how utterly worthless the editor, the editors of this journal are, <laughs> which goes Good. along with, you know, the crap. That yeah,
3: had. that was interesting because he was uh. saying that uh, it seemed like they don't really understand what legitimate scientific query is and, and also the peer review process. And, you know, seriously, Anything. like you, you don't, you can't take any criticism. Like that's what science is based on. That's how it moves forward. That's how we figure out what's real and what's not real is by the peer review process. I mean, it, it was really it, the the whole affair is said. I did go to this guy's website as well. Yeah, Whoa. You know, yeah. I ever tell you guys the uh the more you have to scroll down on a website, the crazier the person that made it is.
2: Mm-hmm. Right?
3: Yeah. I, Rebecca, you know that, right? Like that rule oh, yeah. of thumb. Whoa, it
2: keeps yeah. going. It's that, going. It's that Jay's law.
4: Is that Jay's Law? That's,
3: Jay,
2: that's Jay's I Law. I think it already, I think it, I think it has a name already, but I can't, I can't think of what it allow Steve to redub it Jay's Law. Can I have that? Okay, have fun that's with that.
3: Okay.
1: Grave.
4: So anyway.
2: I feel like so- Jay's Law would really just involve eating too many chicken wings or something. I don't
4: know. <laughs> meatballs. I've done that. But <laughs> yeah, me It's meatballs. more like meatballs.
3: So I scroll all the way down to the bottom of this kite. Now I am not, I'm gonna tell you what. I'm not gonna tell you what he said. I, I challenge you listener of the SGU to find this guy's website and scroll all the way down and read what he has to say about himself, but it, it's written as if it's not him writing about himself. That is a good time. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy?
0: Yep, and back by popular demand we have last week's Who's That Noisy? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> God. Knowing (laughs) what it is is very funny. Yeah.
0: Um, (laughs) Not only knowing what it is, but if you actually go to YouTube and watch the video for it, and you watch the expressions of the turtles, both the male turtle and the female turtle during coitus, it is absolutely hilarious. It's laugh out loud funny. The the male turtle is obviously uh, on top of the back of the female turtle, right? In the typical, you know, from behind position that so many animals
2: Turtle style. yeah, Yeah, turtle
0: style. Exactly. The turtle's mouth is wide open. I mean, jaw to the ground <laughs> open. And all it can kind of do is let out these, you know, moans of, you know, just passion or whatever at the moment. Turtle ah, ecstasy. Ah, you know, it can just like almost Turtle it. power. The same t- kind of
4: gr- <laughs> gasping
0: for air and at the same time, you know, releasing his, his expression oh, yeah. of joy over the moment. And then you pan oh, to the, to the female turtle down below him and she has an expression on her face. It's like you done yet?
2: <laughs>
0: <Aww. laughs> kind
3: of looking around doing her
0: thing. It's like oh gosh here we go again.
2: Of
3: all the Just things in the animal funny. kingdom the thing that is the most human like is definitely that. The, the yeah. coitus? You think so? No no that that the, the noise that that turtle's making is to me like that's it. That's like, the you sound know? you
1: make when you're having sex Jay, is that what you're saying? <laughs> It
3: sounds so similar to that, you'd be
1: freaking. No,
3: but just think about it. I mean, it has all the trappings of, like, you know, not only feeling good, but the exasperation, all the things that are, you know, folded into a sexual experience. That
2: turtle is experiencing it. You can tell just by the sound of his voice. (laughs) Is exasperation often (laughs) included in your list of things you experience during sexual intercourse?
3: (laughs) Any word I picked, you you would have busted my balls. You
2: know, ecstasy, exasperation, disappointment crying <laughs> i just don't know why i always
3: have to leave money on the goddamn dresser
0: God. lots and lots of right answers just about as many correct answers as there were was from the week prior with oliver stone so mm-hmm. uh, that that's a credit to our listening audience frankly if you ask me. i hope
2: this week is oliver stone having sex
4: oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh back into the right. Br-
0: yeah, right. Oh, uh yes, yeah, so we <laughs> there can be only one winner. Threshold.
2: <laughs> oh, Bob, that was
0: good. <laughs> What's Your name. Uh Threshold, one word, Threshold. You are uh this week's winner. Congratulations. Well done. We're going to throw your name into the hat at the end of the year and maybe you'll come and join us for an episode of science or fiction if you're the grand prize winner. So, well done.
1: All right, don't disappoint us this week. I mean, give us something oh, good. I won't
0: disappoint you. Uh okay. So, let's cue it up and fire it away. Here we go. You know this tune. So a lot of people will recognize that tune, and for those of you who don't recognize it, it's the Theme to uh, Mario, Mario Brothers. Brothers. Yep. Mario Brothers. Very classic. However, what is the instrument that is uh, creating the Mario's Brothers theme? Give it your best guess at WTN at the skepticsguide.org. That's the email. Or go ahead and post it on our message boards, which is sguforums.com. Join the message boards if you haven't already. And uh, good luck, everyone.
4: Well, guys, we have one ad this week to talk about, Hulu Plus. You guys have tried Hulu.com, right? Hulu Uh Plus is a hell of a lot more. With Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere. Thousands, literally thousands of hit TV shows and movies in your living room, on the go, with your smartphone, tablet, whatever. You mean shows like
0: Saturday Night Live and Jimmy Kimmel Live, Shark Tank, and Scandal? I can watch all that on Hulu Plus.
2: And what about Mysteries of the Bible, a National Geographic series where you can learn things like who was the first Jesus, the missing years of Jesus, mm-hmm. arresting Jesus and who really killed Jesus and, and Je- other arresting Jesus, Jesus <laughs> mysteries.
0: Jesus CSI.
2: And you can watch Jesus on your i your
3: iPhone, your iPad, any smart device, you can watch it on Apple TV, your Roku, everything. It's it's everywhere. And for only $7.99 a
0: month, you can catch up on your current shows, you can binge on the old favorites, catch
1: a great movie, stream as many TV shows and movies as you want, wherever you want. Right now, if you try Hulu Plus, you can try for free for two weeks. That's an extended free trial by going to huluplus.com slash sgu. So make sure you use the huluplus.com forward slash sgu to get your two-week free trial. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, let's go on to some email. First email comes from Omri. And Omri writes, I have only been listening to the show for six months or so and have been thoroughly enjoying it. Thank you for making it so great. However, this week's interview with Michio Kaku was very disappointing. I have a decent understanding of several of the topics he was talking about by virtue of being in a neuroscience lab. He was so far off in characterizing our understanding of the brain. Kaku conflated DBS treatment of Alzheimer's disease with the Ramirez optogenetics experiment which are completely different efforts with different goals. Relating to implanting a memory, we are so far off from reaching that point in humans, it is ridiculous. The simplest level of this would be activating an existing engram created by the individual, and I don't think we'll even reach that point in humans within my lifetime. Kaku goes on to explain bottom-up learning, but I don't think he understands for how long we have been implementing machine learning. He also seems to think that we will understand the brain once we have mapped all the connections, which would fly in the face of long-term potentiation or our understanding of working memory. His grandiose ideas for using uh, using of imaging for understanding psychological diseases are nice, but ignore the sensitivities of such diseases and all the imaging cannot show us. There's more inadequacies, but I am sure... As I learn more about the brain, I will be able to identify more. It really seems as though Kaku is far more interested in the science fiction implications of neuroscience than anything else. And that's great. We need to discuss those implications for the future. But we need to do so competently and acknowledging what can or cannot be done. And don't get me wrong. There's fantastic and amazing things happening in neuroscience every day. But as skeptics, I think we should move one step at a time and constantly challenge and evaluate the evidence brought forward by people like Kaku. Again, I love the show and thanks and thank you for everything. Well, thanks for taking the time to write in, Omri. So the Michio Kaku interview was a lot of fun last week, but you may have noticed that at the end of the interview, uh, Dr. Kaku abruptly said that he had another call coming, another interview apparently, and he had to go. Uh, what happened was you know, Bob and I were actually pre-gaming the interview. We were talking about, you know, what questions we were going to ask in what order. And our basic plan was to just, you know, let him talk about the book for the first part of the interview and then to phase in, you know, more of the you – know, we had some challenging questions lined up for him about the you know, the difficulties in popularizing science and does he think he goes too far in overhyping it and, you know, sort of going down that road. And then the interview was over. We never got to the phase two of our interview, which was, uh, which was disappointing.
4: Yeah, it's just um – over the – I know a lot of you guys have been experiencing the same thing over the years. I mean initially with Kaku, uh he was just this great science communicator but something happened in the past bunch of years. He just is getting – he just seemed to get wackier and wackier. The, I mean the stuff he says – you know what he means by some of it, but you're like, oh no, did you actually say it that way? I mean, that's not really the way to represent that fact. I mean, it's just really kind of. It seems like he's going for the soundbite, you know? It's like I got it, you know. I want to get this pithy little thing that people are sure to put on TV because it's just so fantastic, and and he just seems to 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 miss the boat in in a lot of ways, you know. People say, you know, do, you know, don't go out of your expertise, and he 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 does wade very deep away from from string theory, but it's kind of classified I see it as like two different areas one you know one is um, he said he misrepresents science some things so much that pseudoscientists will actually use him to support their brand of nonsense which is the last thing you want to happen and other times he just seems to get facts just flat out wrong.
1: I think that Kaku feels like in order to create enthusiasm for science in the public that he has to, Emphasize the fantastical aspects Absolutely. of Absolutely. The science and fiction, I, like, you know, science fiction is becoming real and isn't this fantastic? I agree. And I, He crosses
4: I, the line. Yeah, I agree. Over also, and over.
1: I agree with his strategy and I think there's a, there's a role for that. But I, I don't, yeah, I don't think he has maybe the familiarity with the pseudosciences enough to know, you know, where that line is. Um, and I think he does, uh he needs to be much more careful about sacrificing accuracy for that hyperbole uh so like when discussing the the book you know i was trying to reel him in a little bit you know i didn't want to step on him too much when he was when we were discussing specific issues but you know like i i mentioned the fact that yeah well you know implanting memories that's a long way off the stuff that's probably much closer is uh, controlling prosthetic devices with one's mind. I mean, we're already right. we sort of doing that. I mean, this stuff, I've been writing about this kind of stuff for years. I mean, it's really fascinating. The whole brain machine brain interface stuff really is science fiction and it is, and all the proof of concepts are there. I mean, you know, it, this is something that is happening, you know, and that just through incremental advances, you know, the applications are going to be, are going to be, you know, pretty much like what he described. But then he went into some other stuff that I thought, wow, I, you know, I know the research he's talking about and somebody listening to that would probably get the wrong idea about where we are, yeah. you know, with all of this. Well, I mean, yeah, his intentions were good. I mean, I was
4: looking for something about the book that I could, that I could use it as, a, as an example. You
1: know, I think some of what Kaku said too, it was like not technically wrong. It was a bit naive. Like when he was talking about the fact once we map out oh. the brain, then we'll be able to cure schizophrenia. It's like, well, you know, that's the typical thing that science journalists do, you know, is they look at some basic science advance and say, therefore, once we understand X, that will lead directly to a cure, as if there like aren't a lot of steps in there. You know, that, that mm. whole translational research bit, you know, has to happen. Yeah. Where, you know, where we translate the basic understanding. And you're right, there are, there are, having the connectome, understanding all the connections in the brain is not all we would need to know in order to to translate that into cures for schizophrenia or for for whatever any neurological disease. It certainly is is nice. It's it's a good tool. That's like saying once we have the the genome, the genome then we'll we, hey, we'll cure all genetic diseases. Well, no, sure. it's not that easy. Not it's that cer- easy. it's a good first step, but there's lots of other steps down the road. Um And I think, you know, you know, press Kaku on any of those points, and he acknowledges it. I think he does know it. I think he's just emphasizing the hyperbole. I also get the sense sometimes that he doesn't necessarily know the audience he's talking to, you know? Like, maybe if, if he kind of knew a little bit more about our audience, he would have... Taken a diff- I don't know if he has a different approach it. to take, but
4: yeah, and he must have been doing score, literally scores of interviews all over the place, and it's hard to come up with a new, interesting way to say the same old thing. But wow, it was a little bit frustrating. I ag- I agreed with h- his premise in the book was twofold. One is that. It had to be physically possible, and any of these predictions he had to believe was physically possible, and also there had to be some proof of concept experiment that shows that that this you know this is the beginning, and and from now from now on it's just going to be you know getting it more and more refined, and eventually you know showing that this can happen. So those are those are very laudable, you know, it's a laudable premise to have for these these types of prognostications but he does he never distinguishes between this is 5 years away and this is maybe 80 years away type of thing you know it's like he leaps from one to the other and you, and you think it's kind of all mushed together but there's big differences yeah, right between yeah. mind you know mind control of uh you know of prosthetics or robotics and implanting a memory i mean there's a huge difference in how close we are
1: yeah exactly all right let's move on uh we have another question actually we got two emails within the same week essentially asking us the same question I'm going to read the first one. This one comes from Dave Fernandez from Rolla, Missouri. And Dave writes, How do you honestly cope with the intelligent design frustration? I asked this because I saw a YouTube video where a simple audience question was asked, What scientific test is used to validate intelligent design? This was a very straightforward question. Rather than answering it, the person went on to discuss the meaning of test and the validity of science using as much convoluted logic as he could possibly muster. It went on for about 10 minutes and the question was never answered. And yes, I know they have no idea how to answer it since there is no test for ID. I honestly wanted to shout out and say, answer the effing question, please. I can't see how you guys can take this because there are many times where I am mystified. Seriously, how can you take it sometimes? The other question comes from Brian Anderig from the United States and Brian asks, First off, I want to thank you all for being a sound, reasonable voice in what feels like a largely unreasonable society. My question for you comes from a feeling I got while listening to your recent episode in which you discussed The Food Babe. I found myself uncomfortable with anger, almost to the point where I had to t- to take a walk around the building to work off some frustration. I feel like the voices of people like Vani drown out the voices of those people we should be listening to. I see people on her blog and YouTube praising her for her research, in quotes, and citing shallow reasons she makes good arguments, one of which literally being because she's attractive. I can't help but see this and feel overwhelmed. It almost feels pointless to try to work against these people. My question is, do you feel this way from time to time and how do you deal with it? Thank you for all your hard work. So both questions are basically asking, how do we deal with the frustration of de- constantly dealing with people who are irrational, who don't, you know, base their, <laughs> their worldview on science or evidence or who are, you know, promoting nonsense to the public? Jay, what do you, how do you get out of bed in the morning? How do you do it?
3: You know, first and foremost, I think we're bothered by it so much that we decided to start a skeptical organization and then shift into a <laughs> podcast and dedicate volumes of our free time to help educate people and to help make people more aware of critical thinking and, and logic and science and reason. I mean, yes, it bothers us. We talk about it all the time. You know, we, we email each other every day. Sharing crazy news items and crazy emails that we get. It's, it is very frustrating. And it's kind of like, um, it's therapeutic to do something about it, especially something that you feel is, is making a difference.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a great feeling for us to feel like we are fighting back. It is. I mean, yeah, we can't pretend like it never gets to us. Here, let me give you, during the recording of this podcast, I received the following email uh the entire content of email of the email is in the subject you know like they wrote <laughs> the email in the subject of the email and then like, you couldn't be bothered to hit the tab the body is just the, the the signature <laughs> and here's the email i am highly skeptical that you have any intelligence or critical thinking skill your science only sees a small spectrum of the universe go ahead be skeptical stay ignorant oh and the earth is flat right so yeah there's lots of people out there and we get emails <laughs> uh. like this all the time but you know what? I, you do have to just let those roll off. That's just the chattering noise in the background. There's there's no actual content to that email. You know, it's, again, I often yeah. characterize them. The the intellectual content of that email can be reduced down to yeah. No, it's That's more of a, Oh the- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're just mad that we actually
3: have a show that people listen to. I, I always take it that way like, okay, you know, these people <laughs> are putting all this time in, but be- because they've got somewhere, I'm pissed at them, all right? Whatever. You you know, if you have anything legitimate to say, write a blog, start a podcast, do something to
1: get you, or even though, ask internet. us a legitimate question if you send w- a coherent question Yeah, if you want to challenge right. us on our worldview on our process on our any specific argument that we've made, bring it, let us have it, but make a coherent argument. I think people just you know that kind of stuff I feel is is just uh you know cathartic. they're just yeah they're just sending yeah you right know, right negativity makes themselves out feel into good the ether, you know.
2: Yeah, that sort of thing doesn't bother me at all. I just delete it and move on or laugh about it yeah. with you guys. The things yeah. that make me angry are like, you know, legislation and, 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 yeah. you know, politicians and, um, hucksters who are making millions of dollars and actually destroying people's lives and things like that. And, yeah. You know, huckster politicians. Yeah. And how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I, I think maybe I'm just really motivated by anger <laughs> and, and a sense of, of justice. <laughs> and, and I, I think you guys have the right of it. It's, it's every little thing that I can do to help make the world a better place makes me feel better, you know, and helps yeah. me deal with that kind of. You know. it,
1: it is partly a someone is wrong on the internet response. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, it's like <laughs> yeah. there's something wrong in the world and I have to fix it. And I just ignore the fact that it's just a drop in the bucket. Right. But, you know, the other hand is it has been very uh, satisfying doing the podcast because, you know, we do have a great audience. We get lots of fabulous feedback. You know, I do think that you know, so, so many people have told us that we've made a difference for them that uh, it absolutely keeps us going against the tide of negativity that we're also, you know, swimming yeah. against. We
0: received an email a few days ago that said basically this. I found you guys when trying to figure out how astrology works. I've been listening for three years now and love it. The SGU has changed my life. So here's somebody who was really interested to see, you know, maybe they had some questions about, well, is this real? Is it not? They're kind of like a fence sitter. You know, how, what can I learn about astrology? I, re- I really do want to figure it out. He stumbled upon us and we were able to help him realize that there's no science to astrology. And is, as, you know, and he, he came for the astrology and, you know, stayed for the skepticism. And, you know, it's emails like that, I think that answer the
3: question as to how and why we deal with this, why we put up with so much. Discovering the outlet for you, though, I think that's a key thing here. But, you know, if you could find your niche and find something that you enjoy to discuss or write about or get involved in. I mean, there's tons of different types of skepticism or or, or uh, activism that you can do, and it really is just finding something and sticking with it and being happy with any any changes that you make.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the questions the the two emails are more about like how can they deal with it. Not necessarily how are we dealing with it? You know that's kind of how they framed it. I think that you're you're right, Jay. That you know the real question here is what what can the average person do to deal with the this, this sea of inanity out there in the world? You know the thing is, you know my approach is, I mean to get philosophical a little bit is there's good and bad in everybody. You know everyone has baggage. Everyone has their personal insanity. And most people also have some good parts. Everyone's a mix. It's all really what what you choose to focus on. You know, I, I think it, there is something to be said for, you know, trying to just ignore a lot of the negativity and just don't let it get you down because that's, again, it is just sort of the background noise of life. And especially now with the internet. I mean, you have to develop a, develop a thick skin. You can't let the trolls drag you down is the bottom line because they're out there now and they have access to – the, you know, the, the, the medium by which we communicate and get information. Yeah. You know, even just, just being the voice of reason in your group is hugely important because, you know, think about Definitely. how much that magnifies the reach of skeptics. You know, if every skeptic is surrounded by 20 people that they're being the voice of skepticism for, how, how magnificently does that extend our reach? And
3: Rebecca said this about a month ago, I think, and I I really agreed with her. You, you know, Rebecca, you were saying there's just so many places that critical thinking and skepticism they would benefit those communities and those groups, and you know, from everything, every avenue of the world, every corner would benefit from a skeptic being there and raising skeptical issues inside of it. It Could be anything. Could be anything. Like just you know, think about how many different types of news items that we cover, that all need critical thinking. To to guide the way through it. And you could just pick any one of those things. Like let's say you, you know any hobby that you like, just try to apply skepticism to it and write about it or talk to people about it. Just, I know it's mini
2: skeptic knitters. The, there's a <laughs> hardcore <laughs> collection of skeptic knitters. So take up knitting.
0: And knit pickers.
2: It's a very relaxing hobby.
1: Knitting? That we're <laughs> I, I we'll, we'll end with knitting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're gonna do next, next question. good to do a name that logical fallacy. Integrated. Uh we haven't done one in a while. This one is a is a question from Stephen Yenzer from the United States. And Stephen writes As a vegan skeptic, uh oh, I often find myself in arguments <laughs> what, what was that? What was that? On with omnivores who seem to rely almost exclusively on logical fallacies to justify their diets. Examples include humans have been eating meat for tens of thousands of years, the argument from antiquity. Lions hunt and kill animals. Humans are no different. It's natural to eat meat, the naturalistic fallacy. One I hear a lot is the question of, well, what would we do with all the animals that already exist? Should we just kill them, stop them from reproducing? (laughs) Of course, this has nothing to do with the question of whether it's ethically acceptable to raise and kill animals for food. It may be an unsolved problem, but it doesn't justify a continuation of that policy. So is this just a red herring non sequitur? The latter also appears a lot as in harvesting vegetables kill, kills insects, and vegetables are bad for the environment too. Thanks, Stephen Steven. Yes, no, okay, thanks, Stephen. That's a provocative question. So is it a logical fallacy to argue that humans have been eating meat for tens of thousands of years? But I guess it depends on what the question is. If the question is, is it ethical, then I think that, you know, then you have to answer the question, well, you know, what... Um, What ethical principle are you referring to? If it's based entirely on the rights of the animals, then I do think that you know, putting it into context is reasonable. It doesn't make the case. Just because we've been eating animals for tens of thousands of years doesn't make it right because we've been doing lots of things for tens of thousands of years that are wrong. And the norms and culture evolves and change and things that were acceptable, you know, a thousand years ago are no longer acceptable, et cetera, et cetera. So from that perspective, that I do agree that that is it is a logical fallacy to justify eating animals just by saying we've been doing it for a long time. Or by trying to make some kind of naturalistic argument. If, on the other hand, those arguments are used to to say that, well, like for example, and I, I have made this point before, most you know animals out in the wild there are are killed and eaten at some point, or or they die from injury or disease. Because the question does sort of, when you talk about the ethics of of eating animals, I do think that leads to the question of, well, what do animals deserve? What kind of life does an animal deserve to have? Do they deserve to have a fulfilling life? A life that doesn't end with them being eaten? Because if you think that, then you have, you know, you, you have a problem with the natural world because that is, that is the fate of most animals. I do think there's some legitimacy there, you know. So my personal view, not to hog this conversation, my personal view is that I do think that we have a, that we do have an obligation to treat animals humanely. I don't think that there's anything inherently unethical with eating an animal after it's dead. Um, I do think how we treated the animal before it died is, is a matter of ethics. And I understand that the meat-creating industry in this world is tied with bad treatment of animals. So those two things cannot be entirely separated.
2: You know, just to address the... idea of having a problem with the natural world, I I think you're slightly and unintentionally misrepresenting the argument that is made, because I think that the argument isn't necessarily it is immoral or unethical to uh, kill and eat an animal. Uh, I think it's more along the lines of it's unethical or immoral to do that if you don't have to. Because, uh, you know, I, I think that most if not all vegans i won't say all there's some there's some fruit loops in every bowl of cereal um but i i think that <laughs> stay with me i think that um <laughs> most most vegans would uh would say that it's absolutely moral and ethical for even people to do what they need to do to survive when it comes to eating animals like if you if it's you versus the chicken and only one of you is getting out alive. Then eat that chicken. Uh, but but uh, and and you know and that that is a very real life scenario for a lot of people who uh, don't have the education or the money or the resources to eat a healthy diet that doesn't have meat in it. However, for people in the United States, for instance, who are you know middle income and above, we don't need to eat meat in order to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And so I, I I think that the argument is merely, as humans, have we reached a point where we can safely say it's unethical to kill an animal that we don't need to kill?
1: But is that really the deciding factor that we that you need to do it to survive? I mean, so let me ask you a question. If you could, you know, raise cows, for example – and they leave a perf- lead a perfectly content life in the field, you know, eating their grass, doing what they do. And at the end of their life, they're humanely killed, in a, you know, in a way that does not cause any pain and suffering. And we eat them after they're dead. I mean, w- what's the ethical problem with that? Well, I, I
2: mean, I think there are a lot of people who would argue that there is no way to humanely kill a creature like
1: that. I don't I don't accept that premise. We can kill people without, you know, or animals without We can knowing. kill
2: people who want to be killed. That's humane. Is it humane to kill something that doesn't want to be killed?
4: What if a cow said, "I want you to eat my living <laughs> What if
2: the cow, you know where they actually could enunciate and- the old restaurant at the end of the universe argument. <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs> somebody had to <a laughs> say it. <laughs> <that.
0: laughs> Some might argue there would never be a cow or a chicken or any of these animals unless they were bred for eating. Yeah, they were
3: farmed. Yeah, they were selectively
2: bred for those properties too. That's what the the person who was emailing was bringing up the argument. You know, what should we do with all these animals? And their question was, is that a logical fallacy? And I think, if anything, it it would be moving the goalposts or a non sequitur because you know, depending, like Steve said, depending on what the initial. Uh, point of argument is, you know, talking about well, what do we do once we've decided uh, that this is an immo- immoral thing that we shouldn't do anymore? That's another question.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's a separate question. That's not yeah. a reason not to make that decision. Yeah. But what are we going to do with all the animals? You know. But I, 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 I don't <laughs> accept the premise that it's impossible to to kill an animal humanely. I, I think you can.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why it comes down to you know, this is a philosophical issue yeah. you know it's a moral issue and i yeah i i can't think of any way in which i would i i could think of a humane way to kill something that didn't want to be killed
1: i i don't think it knows to be honest with you does the cow really know if you know that it right. wants or to? does the fish know it's? if the,
2: the animal had a choice i think it would continue to go on living
1: but you know so but what kind of duration Enough and quality procure. of life do we owe these animals i mean that that's the the question. Does it really know if it's lived for four years or three years or two years? Does a cow really know that? I mean I just don't think that that's the case if we've if we've you know it's it's my belief that if we bring
2: something into being, then we owe it to that being to give it as good a life as we can and I feel the same way about you know cats and dogs I'm really against breeding pretty much any animal, which I've gotten into arguments with good friends over <laughs> who happen to be breeders. Um But because I, I feel like, you know, there's a problem when you start treating li- living creatures as um merchandise to to buy and sell. And, and I do think that we owe it to a thing that we bring into existence. You know, we owe it to that thing to, yeah, to give it as good a life as possible. And I don't think that killing it for food is, is in line with that. That's but again, that's my, you
1: know, yeah. that's
3: my
2: personal belief.
1: Yeah, I hear well, you. I just think it can be, you know, if it's done properly. It's my I problem.
3: think that this this argument will this discussion will always, you know, go back and forth between the two camps until science actually fixes the problem, which I fully believe is going to take place. I think we're going to be able to manufacture lab grown meat, lab grown meat, milk in the lab, all of these different things that we want. And that'll actually do something. I, I, honestly don't believe these discussions lead to anything. Saturday, no, I, I think
1: it's not, it's, it's, it's helpful to have these discussions. First of all, you know, any sort of meaningful philosophical discussion has a purpose, I believe. I didn't Just
3: think, it, I'm not saying it's not helpful.
1: Yeah. I, what I'm saying is nothing changes. After these discussions, well, no, no, no I per- I, I, Jay, I disagree with you. I think having this conversation as a society—I'm not saying on this podcast—but it is helpful because it does inform policy in terms of like how to treat animals for research, how to treat you know animals that are being raised for food. I do think that it, it has led in the last hundred years to more humane treatments of animals, which is good. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so I I do think it does lead to something. It's not going to lead to a definitive answer if that's what you're looking for, because we're talking about value judgments. Okay. Well, thanks for the questions, David. All right, guys, let's go on to science or fiction.
0: It's time for science
4: or fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. We have a theme this week. We haven't had one in a while, and the theme this week is meat. Pepper. Pepper. Uh, Pepper. Pepper, yeah. Cayenne pepper, pepper. or red pepper. You'll see. Okay. Everyone ready? Yep. ready? Item number one. Can't wait. Peppercorns are the dried fruit of the pepper tree, which is native to India and parts of the Middle East and Northern Africa. I uh, number two, black pepper has been used as currency throughout ancient and medieval times, often valued equal to or greater than gold. And item uh, number three, pepper was used in the mummification process of Ramses II. Evan, go first.
0: Peppercorns, they're native to India and parts of the Middle East and Northern Africa. Wow. Okay. I mean... Sorry, don't know about where peppercorns are native to, um, and it's also the dried fruit of the pepper tree, apparently. Okay, wh- what could possibly be wrong with, with that statement? I don't know. Moving on, black pepper has been used as a currency throughout ancient medieval times. Okay, so we have, we have the spice trails, right, and the spice islands, and, you know, the Dutch and the Spanish, and everyone went sailing around the world to get these spices, and Bring them back to Europe, so definitely um used as a currency, sure, why not? Often valued equal to or greater than gold. Yes, perhaps at some points in time. Uh certainly that has been the case. Uh salt and other things, I think, also uh were expensive items, and uh why not pepper? And pepper can also preserve meats, if I'm not mistaken, and stuff, therefore it has, you know, more even more value. Uh, in that regard, pepper, and then the last one pepper was used in the mummification process of Ramses the second. well, speaking of meat and pepper, uh you know there could be a connection there. They perhaps felt that you know well if you're going to, if your meats are going to be protected with pepper, you might as well protect your Ramses with uh, pepper as well nothing you know nothing too crazy there sort of sort of preservative process. So therefore, what I'm left with this first one, the pep- where the peppercorns are native to India, parts of the Middle East, northern Africa. Ugh. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go with the. Pe- I'll go with the the first one about the pepper tree and native to India and parts of the Middle East because you know I just think the other two are a little stronger. That's it.
3: Okay, Jay. All right, I'm going to start in reverse order. Pepper was used in the mummification process of Ramses II. I don't
1: know. We have to say about
3: Ramses. Ramses. Isn't it pronounced uh, Rameses? Yes, you're right, Bob. And right. Ramesses. Ramesses?
0: Ramesses. <laughs> <laughs> All
3: right. So look, I don't know if they used pepper on that particular guy, but sure, they used pepper for the mummification process. Number two, uh, is about uh, using it as a currency and, uh, absolutely they use all sorts of spices and, and whatnot as currency. All different types of things like that. So, as first one about the, uh, peppercorn and the dried fruit of the pepper tree. The pepper tree, Steve. This one is definitely, <laughs> this one is, <laughs> and spaghetti grows on um, thorn bushes and trees, and meatballs, yeah. The spaghetti, yeah. I, uh, spaghetti. I saw I it on a commercial. That there once. is a pepper tree, so I'm going to say the first one is the fake.
1: Okay. By the way, both are acceptable: Ramses and Rameses. Really? It. Yes. Noted. A um, condom
3: has never been named better.
1: Bob,
4: go next. Um. I don't really have anything to add to what everyone's been saying uh, except Jay is it pepper kind of like uh are you a savant about pepper like you are about thanksgiving? <laughs> I I honestly He seems uh, we'll very knowledgeable. We'll talk about
3: mm. afterwards. I will divulge all, right.
4: uh, all <sighs> afterwards. What the hell, what did you I contribute? As confident as Jay? I said a few things um, too, Bob. But yeah, I mean I've got nothing really to add. I'm I'm gonna pepper's currency it makes total sense. Mummification using pepper. All right. I've seen my share of, of mummy documentaries. I don't specifically remember pepper in the ingredient list, but it kind of makes sense and more sense than a pepper tree ever did. Um, so I'm going to say the pepper tree is, is fiction. <laughs> okay, Steve, can I do the reveal? Of the street,
2: no. And Rebecca. I don't think I have much of a choice here. Uh, I don't think there's any such thing as a pepper tree, Steve. A shrubbery, maybe, not a tree. I'm going to go with that one. A pepper sufficient. shrubbery? Yeah, pepper all shrubbery. All right.
1: You all agree on number one, so let's start. Pepper shrubbery. We'll go in reverse order. A nice one. Item number three. Not too big. Pepper was used in the mummification process of Ramses or Ramesses second. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they shoved all sorts of shit in people's heads. <laughs> yeah, They they found peppercorns stuffed up his nose. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> right after they took his brains out through God. it, right? And he's yeah. yeah, in his yeah, brain where his brain was oh God, or something like, With yeah. the equivalent of a coat hanger, yeah. Wouldn't
4: that take forever? <laughs> Think hey, about you it. you know. A coat hanger, I mean, at least use a melon scooper no. baller thing. <laughs> I don't think they had melon ballers back then they, should, they sure
2: as
3: hell did they did they scooped their brains out they I mean know have you have
2: clear, you seen the Patrick pyramids did. I don't think they were too concerned about time consuming efforts
4: yeah <laughs> <They did> all <laughs> the time gonna right. oh, yeah, yeah, take a week
3: yeah, I, I, they used to take all their internal organs out and put them in jars and jugs and whatnot
1: yes
4: take that with you all right so you go
1: on all right Freaks. Oh, You want me to just go ahead, do you? All right. Item number two, black pepper has been used as currency throughout ancient and medieval times, often valued equal to or greater than gold. You also think this one is science, and this one, so no one asked when I said valued equal to or greater than gold by what standard, you know, what? I, and I guess you all assumed by weight. We didn't care because there's no such thing as a pepper tree. <laughs> and um, it is by weight so uh, pe- pepper <laughs> this is this one is science yeah so that's a lot that's a lot <laughs> of pepper to Everyone. match gold
4: by weight yeah <laughs> oh, so <poor> Evan. <laughs> and there,
1: at times pepper was <laughs> as valuable pepper was also a very good store of value that's why it was used as currency because the dry peppercorns, as long as you kept them dry and out of the sunlight, they would last for a really long time. So they actually could be used. In fact, they were acceptable in many times yeah. as payment for rent or a dowry or for whatever. Often uh, on two separate occasions when Rome was sacked, part of the the bribe they had to pay was uh, like a ton of pepper. Oh. Yeah. You it's mean a, like a uh, lot of pepper or a no, ton? No, I mean like – I mean a literal that's ton a lot, of pepper. That's a lot of – that's a – yeah. Uh at the time of the Roman Empire, they had a fleet of about pepper. 120 ships that once a year would visit India after the monsoon and would pick up a whole crap loaded of, of pepper and bring it back. So, yeah, pepper was an it is the most common spice sold in the United States today. It is wow. largely credited with being uh you know the the primary commodity in the spice trade which spawned a great deal of exploration so pepper in a way was partly responsible for the transition from you know the, the medieval times to the age of exploration that's what I
0: said Dutch
3: uh,
1: at Spanish, what point their... pepper became more of a common item than a luxury item
3: I think I'm going to take a guess here Steve uh, yeah but it was when the, um, you know when they oh god how do I put this you know the selective breeding of the plant it got to the point where they, they could grow it in different places no,
1: it happened when England took over India, and the East oh. India Company began massively exporting it. It became so common that it oh, yes. became an everyday, you know, tabletop commodity rather than something that was a luxury item that was very expensive.
2: Let's hear it for colonization.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's an <like> upside <laughs> to everything. <laughs> All of this means that. There's no pepper tree. Peppercorns are the dried fruit of the pepper tree, which is native to India and parts of the Middle East and Northern Africa is, of course, fiction. But let me ask you all this. If peppercorns don't come from the pepper tree, where do they come from? The pepper shrubbery. It's a plant. It's uh, a freaking plant. The store. And they're seeds that grow on the plant. Stop and chop. No, it's
2: still, it's a fruit.
1: But it is a fruit. It is absolutely a fruit. They're, you know, these little pink or green you know, things that they let dry out and they turn black.
2: And it's like a flowering plant.
1: But it is it is a vine. It's a vine <laughs> that, that grows oh, up trees. Shit. Yeah. Can be as high as 100 feet. A vine.
3: Feet. Yeah. Did you ever smell a pepper plant?
4: Does it no. smell like pepper? Pretty much. Steve, you should okay. have said pepper vine. I wouldn't have bought that either.
1: <laughs> well, I had to make something wrong. Uh, <laughs> but it's also not found in Middle East and Northern <laughs> Africa. That's also not true. But would you guys have bought that?
0: Ha That was my suspicion. I w- That's that's. I thought the geography yeah. part of it was the. Uh, you, you, know, know, you were to me, destined was for a, a sweep, sweep today, Steve.
1: The pepper
3: tree was the. Th- I I you know this goes back to my botany class. I I knew that it it's like a plant, like a bush plant. Yeah. I don't remember it being a vine. I I do remember it being a plant though. No, it's a tree. vine.
1: It's a long, it's a long growing yeah. vine. You know, there's um, varieties. Did you you knew that right? Steve? So yeah, did you uh, of course. There's, yeah, I read I read a kinds. lot about it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's mainly, it's mainly found in India, but also other countries in Southeast Asia and Brazil. Brazil has a lot of pepper trees, pepper plants, pepper vines. Pepper There's, is definitely
3: not something that people like when they're young.
1: <laughs> but my, my younger daughter puts it on her french fries. Really? Yeah. She's weird that one.
0: It always had its place in, in the food. My baked potato had some. India, and Indonesia, pepper and a little bit Brazil,
1: and Vietnam is where most black pepper is grown.
2: Why Brazil?
1: Like, was it? Indonesia. Is it native Islands. to Brazil? I don't know if they just transplanted it there. I don't know. Probably. Hmm. Uh, there are black peppercorns, white peppercorns, green peppercorns, and pink peppercorns. Fascinating. But I'll tell you where I got the tree from. That w- that wasn't totally arbitrary. Haha, <laughs>
0: get it? Arbitrary.
1: Yeah, arbitrary. Uh, the, you guys are familiar with allspice? Sure. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely allspice a very important spice in a lot of uh middle eastern cooking often part of curry allspice is the fruit the dried fruit of the allspice tree it's pretty much and and the, the little you know the uh, the little uh allspice um fruit dried fruit are about the same size and shape as peppercorns they look like pale peppercorns so it's basically the exact same thing except it grows on a tree instead of a vine so mm. i don't know why you would think that a peppercorn tree was so unlikely when an allspice tree actually exists. Because pepper doesn't grow on
3: trees. <laughs> it does if the vine is growing on a tree. Uh-huh.
1: Oh, I see. So
3: you're saying that it's kind of like a symbiotic relationship. No, it's a parasitic relationship. Exactly. And that's why we didn't believe it. <laughs> uh, all right. So anyway, you, you blew it, Steve. It was fun, but now it's over. Uh, and now I have a phenomenal quote from all
1: Dr. Phil Plate. Good job, Steve. Thank you. If it was fun then I didn't blow it. I had fun. <laughs> we all had See, fun. See, I, I could move that goalpost anywhere I want. Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: Phil Plate said something.
3: Yeah, right. go. So Hit me. Listener Brad Reed sent in a quote from Phil Plate. He was reading Phil's blog, which I recommend that you do, and you could read Phil's blog at slate.com. It's bad astronomy. And the awesome quote is, humanity and life are reflected in the stars and the universe itself is poetry. Ooh. Especially if she'll- <laughs> play. That was kind
1: of <laughs> scary. <laughs> Jay, I understand that you have an update for us on stimulus response before Nexus.
3: Right. So I have all the information now about stimulus response, and it's going to be, I dare say, better than last year. And it is going to be better than last year. We have a really cool lineup- this year, we wanted to do something different. So what we decided to do was we brought in an improvisational band that's going to play music behind a couple of people who are going to be reading either skeptical scientific information or pseudoscience. And it'll be kind of like a beatnik type poetry reading jivey kind of scene When I've heard this stuff believe me it's awesome it's, it's a lot. Of, it is it's funny as hell because the the, the, uh, the tone of it gets really interesting with the music behind it and even more interesting we have two really awesome people that are going to be reading we have George Robb who will be doing the dramatic reading and Brian Francis Slattery who is going to be doing vocals fiddle and banjo among a lot of other musicians that will be there to make that part awesome and then of course Act two is going to be Steve's life interpreted by comedians mm-hmm. after they interview him and make him squirm in his seat for about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, that's happening sure. on Friday night, April 11th, Stimulus Response Show. Uh, We really would love it if you came to that. The show starts at 7.30, and the rest of the weekend will be spent in Nexus Bliss with all the awesome speakers, live SGU, private SGU, all the workshops on Friday. We'd really love it if you can come. Please go to nexus.org, N-E-C-S-S
1: dot O-R-G. Register today. Thanks. Thanks, Jay, and thanks for joining me, everyone.
3: Thank you, Steve.
1: Thanks, Dr. Pepper Trees
3: are a lie.
1: And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward/sgu or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you.